Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Hi, this is Sarah. Ever since we released this podcast, we've been hearing from people who so appreciate the conversations we're sharing and are wanting something more. I've partnered with one of the loveliest people I know, health coach Erin Vanderkoy, and we will be facilitating a retreat at the Oregon coast called Pause, Breathe, Restore. If you're interested in exploring your grief in a safe, caring, and beautiful environment, please check out pausebreatherestore.com or visit the show notes for this episode. We'd love to have you join us. Gratitude and Greatness explores reconciling grief, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we achieve when we connect with purpose. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. As a young woman, Marcy experienced some bizarre and painful physical sensations, which turned out to be symptoms of two different autoimmune diseases. She did not allow these diagnoses to interfere with her life, even as they posed great challenges. I talked with Marcy about the stress of living with her condition and finding solace in her creative process. It started off as one thing called dermatomyositis Mm -hmm. when I was 19. Within a year of graduating from high school, I started getting symptoms of something for a while they thought it was a rheumatoid arthritis or something and but I kept getting symptoms on top of those and the symptoms were weakness and some joint pain and weight loss so I went and saw a specialist and it took them like three or four months to diagnose me and it wasn't until I started kind of showing other symptoms some rashes on my hands and stuff that they did another test and came up with the diagnosis of dermatomyositis. Autoimmune diseases attack your body. Right. And there's all kinds. Dermatomyositis is the derma, my skin, and muscle. So my body was attacking my muscle tissue, thinking it was the enemy. And so I became really weak, started basically scarring my muscle tissue because it was trying to repair something that it didn't need repair. And what's the result of the scarring of your muscle tissue? So, you know, it's an inflammation. And if you let it go on too long, you know, you lose some muscle mass. As soon as they figured out what was going on and gave me medication, steroids, prednisone, it was like instantaneous relief, which that's what prednisone does. (laughs) Um, A lot of my symptoms were reversed. You know, we went like six months without knowing really what was going on or what was happening to me, which was super scary to, you know, we found it and here's some medication. And it was like, whoa, you know, I wasn't completely back, but I started gaining weight. You know, my life was coming back to me. and But it turned into something else. So then as it progressed within like that year, it started realizing that there were sort of other symptoms. And that was um, tightening of my skin. Mm-hmm mostly on my face, they put another diagnosis. I had underlying scleroderma, which scleroderma is another autoimmune, but this one attacks the collagen in your body. Okay. And there's a couple different kinds of scleroderma. One that's more 
and I can never remember. One's linear, one's diffused. One can just be more like skin-based, but the other one can attack your organs, the collagen in your organs. And so basically it hardens that collagen. It's like overproduction of collagen. Okay. And so it can be really deadly to certain people. Mine was underlying. And so I wasn't testing for it, but I was getting some of the symptoms, like my facial features were tightening. I was losing my lips. If you did all the tests, I wouldn't test for it. And I was lucky because it kind of ran a course and then it sort of stopped. Like, what's the course? Like, what's the period of time that that it ran? Uh, Well, I mean, it was a year or two where everything was changing. And then it kind of stopped. Like, I didn't... Some people, it gets so bad. I mean, you know, my mouth is a little tighter. I have trouble at the dentist. My skin's pretty thin on my face. But, you know, people have it so they're just... It's just hardening and hardening and... (laughs) And mine didn't luckily go that way. But I still, 20 years later, I'm still having symptoms. My hands have kind of, you know, when I have a flare-up of my condition, and I like to call it kind of a connective tissue autoimmune because most people who have these sort of connective tissue autoimmune diseases, they don't all have the same symptoms. Somebody can have A and C. Somebody can have B, C, and D. And so even though I had some of these symptoms from the scleroderma early, they didn't really affect my life for a long, long period up until about, I'd say, around 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, my hands started to become involved, and they started curling up on each other. So I ended up getting surgeries to fuse my joints, my knuckles, to open so that they're more useful because they were like curling into like a fist. Okay. They're a little straight. They kind of curl up, but they, you know, they're a little open. (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing when they went in to do the surgery. The surgery to fuse your knuckles. To fuse, to fuse them open. Mm-hmm. And I had them done both at different times because one was affected more quickly than the other. But as my plastic surgeon said, when you go in there, it's not the joints that were the problem like with rheumatoid arthritis. It's the skin around my hands is what's making them curl up, not the joints. Interesting. So when you go in there, you go, oh, it looks nice and healthy. It's the skin that's tightening and constricting and pulling my hands closed. And they didn't prescribe something like a skin graft to add more skin to your hands? That's, we've thought about it on the palms and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that I could maybe do that. Right. At this point, this we felt like was the best because my skin is thin and I have had skin grafts actually on my elbows. That's, see, there's so much, <laughs> which happened way early. But yeah, I just think, you know, getting skin grafts, have your body take on. Right. Um, this seemed like the right avenue to do at this point. And it's helpful, but there, even with the fusing of my fingers, my hands are still slowly kind of constricting. So you've had surgery on your feet as well. I've had surgery on my feet. Is that for a similar reason? Uh, yeah. Part of the disease is my muscle mass, my collagen, the fatty tissue. Like on my feet, it's very limited. And so I get a lot of wear on my toes. And my toes, <laughs> I feel like this sounds so sad. You know, I was having problems with my feet. And then they realized when they did an x-ray that I had a bunch of dislocated toes. I was walking around with dislocated toes. How did that happen? <laughs> oh, no. And was, so, that, was that a byproduct of this disease? Or yeah, was that, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, I believe, yeah. 
You are not wearing orthotics. I do. They're not in these shoes, but I do have orthotics. Oh, you do? But they go into shoes. Okay. Because you're always wearing, you know, pretty hip sneaks. Yes. I I (laughs) loved shoes. And I love shoes. That's a sad part. I can only wear certain shoes because they need to have enough padding, but I also need to have enough room in the toes. My toes are kind of hammered a little. And I do mourn the fact that I can't wear like heels. I don't wear heels anymore. Well, if it makes you feel any better, (laughs) Um, as I'm getting older, I'm not wearing heels so much either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I wish, but you could if you wanted to, see? Yeah, I could. Yeah, that's true. But at least you're wearing some pretty cool sneakers. Adidas. Yeah. You've undergone a lot of surgeries over a long period of time, so the medical world is a big part of your yeah. life. Yeah. And, you know, definitely I go through periods of more flare-ups and surgeries and then, you know, dormant mm-hmm. periods in my life. But yeah, from an early on, one of my first surgeries was on my elbow, which I had skin grafts, which is a whole other, more one of the things that I had to deal with that started the surgeries was part of my dermatomyositis. A couple years into it was I started um, getting calcium deposits in the fatty tissue of my body and they started on my elbows and that was basically my body producing bone rocks wow of bone and they started ulcerating and coming out i mean little chunks of bone would come out come so, out how do they come out like poke they want it well the because skin? they're like a foreign body and they wanted to like come out and so my elbows is where it started they just started growing, and you could kind of see them under the skin, and it was, like, lumpy-looking. And you just describe how you have thinner skin. Yeah. So, yeah, on your elbows. Literally thinner skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not figuratively. No, not no, from no, no, no. the person I know you I'm to be. Thick, thick <laughs> but that sounds pretty scary. Like, it could actually, like, come through your skin. So it did. Oh, my gosh. It did, and it came in as in little pieces coming out. There was part that were liquid, sort of, like toothpaste. Yeah. And you could kind of squeeze it out like toothpaste. It was super weird and sci-fi almost. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was like, look what my body is doing. Crazy. What's your pain threshold? Because it sounds really painful, all of this. Yeah, huge. I have a huge pain threshold. Yeah. My plastic surgeon, who's done the, many of my hand surgeries and stuff, he's been my angel. And he's a breast reconstruction, but hand reconstruction. And when I got these calcium deposits, my rheumatologist referred me to him. And he, you know, was like, what do you think we could do with this? Because they were ulcerating on my elbows. And so the skin had gotten damaged. And so we're like, what can we do? And he had to kind of think out of the box and go, hmm, let's think. We could do a skin graft. And and so he did the original surgeries on my elbows and did a skin graft, mm-hmm. cleaned up as much as he could, and then did this full thickness skin graft on my elbow. You know, it was totally experimental. Yeah. We're like, we'll see if that works. And it worked. That's great. And to this day, that was a while ago. That was 25-ish years ago. When you get a skin graft, that means they have to harvest the skin from somewhere else yes. on your body. Yes. So where did they pull um, that from? Uh, the groin, right in, right on here. your thigh. Yeah. No, on the little crease between my pelvis and my thigh. It's almost like they take a cheese scraper. No. So this is a full thickness. So what do they do? 
So they have to take the full thickness. So they he cut it out and then closed it back up and then put it on my elbow, sewed it up like Frankenstein. He, so you had to heal both in uh-huh. your hip. Yeah, so I have big, meets your Yeah, so I have scars up all the way up your down, thighs. Yeah. No, on yeah, and right in that crease there. So it has to be covered for a long period of time and then slowly see if it's taking and it did. That's wonderful. And then a year later, we ended up doing the other elbow. So you were in your early 20s. So yeah, when I was diagnosed, it started within a year, less than a year after high school. It has shaped my, you know, it was a seriously pivotal time. It's been my whole adult life. Right when I was becoming an adult, this happened. How did that feel emotionally to be dealing with that at the beginning of your independent life? Well, in the beginning, you're just so immersed in it. You know, when you don't have a diagnosis yet, you're just like, what is going on? Am I dying? And, you know, am I going to be crippled? And then you have a second hope and you just kind of go on with life. I mourned it, but part of me just kind of lived my life. I think it's sort of my attitude. Like, I got a job cocktailing, you know, I When I could, I just ignored it. Yeah. Probably detrimentally some points in my life. And why do you say detrimentally? You know, I probably could have taken better care of myself in a lot of ways. But I just wasn't going to be defined by it, I guess. I guess you could say that. I was just going to live my life. And I was young enough. And I had things to do. And, you know, and I met my kid's dad pretty early on. I was diagnosed at 19. And we met when we were 23 or 24. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was right when I was having these sort of more physical elbows, and that was becoming more apparent. You know, there was a lot of hope in my life right about the same time. I always known you to be a really upbeat individual. Yeah. Really positive. Yeah. And really fun. Yeah. <laughs> and funny. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you think that you've embraced that humorous side more so because of the illness? Yeah. I think I've always been this way. Yeah. I've always been outgoing. And so I think that's what's helped me. I, there's nurture and nature. And I think it's just my nature to be this way, which has benefited me greatly. Not to say that I haven't gotten down, but it's not a place I like to stay in very long. So when you are feeling down, what helps you get back up? I just think it's my natural place to be is up. And so I, what is it? It's just me. Yeah. I'm a really quick processor, I think, of things. And so when things happen, I have to go low and I have to like cry and scream and be angry. I have to do those things. I'm not good at keeping stuff in. But once I kind of do that, I feel like, okay, I'm good. Okay, I got that out. Now I'm ready to get back to it. So I finally get up and wash my face and, <laughs> and uh, but, you know, it's ebbs and flows. Well, I should stop and say, like, you know, the tightening of your skin on your face has definitely affected your facial features. Yeah. yeah. And you are a very fashionable woman <laughs> and you're a beautiful woman. The pictures of you in your youth, you look like a model. Yeah. And one thing I noticed in the last few years you've been posting a lot of self-portraits of yourself a lot of selfies hashtag not afraid of selfie 
Not afraid of selfie. <laughs> and I, I'm curious what inspired you to do that. I think that was happening right around the same time as I was going through the separation with my kid's dad, who I'd been with for 20 years, trying to find myself again in my 40s and be okay with myself and not hide or... Because I used to love to get my picture taken. I loved it. Why? I was, I was in front of a mirror because I was cute. I was so cute. <laughs> um, you do have, I should say, a really infectious smile. And and you smile with your eyes, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm all for you. Not, af- not afraid. Of, well, but so that being said, I was always in front of the mirror. I mean, anybody will tell you. Even my aunt just said it recently, like, you loved yourself. So getting this condition, which affected me, and also it happened right as I think I was getting, like, I'm not sure how much is the disease or how much of it is my adult, like just growing out of being a teenager and becoming a woman and medication, like all those things affected the way I looked. I'm not sure what is what, but I got really self-conscious and I don't like to get my picture taken anymore. So when I started doing that not afraid of selfie thing, it was to kind of not be afraid of selfie, not to be afraid of my face. Some people say, oh, you have an infectious smile. And, and I go, oh, I look skeletal. Or And I've had kids walk by and look at me strangely or even say something kind of under their breath because I do look different. So I'm trying to embrace that. So when I was three years old, I was burned. Uh, I have third degree burns on my body and I have skin grafts. So that's why I know a little bit about skin grafts. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't know a thing about it. But I remember, yeah, I was three years old. I had skin grafts and and they harvested skin off my butt and thighs Mm -hmm. to replace the skin. So was yours like thinner sort of sheets? I think so. I often imagine like a cheese slicer. (laughs) I'm thinking, is that what they used? I don't know. I was so young at the time. I didn't have that opportunity to ask the doctors. I was only three years old. And so I remember being probably a junior high school student. And much of my youth, I hid my grafts as much as possible because I was self-conscious. But I think I was, you know, working on getting more and more comfortable. And I think one time a child saw my skin grafts and was afraid of me. But I remember just going, wow, some people see me as a monster just because of that. Yeah. And I remember the like embarrassment on the child's parents' face. And I just was like, wow. Yeah. And here I was working so hard to love myself and then to get that reaction. So I, when you just shared what you shared, yeah, I think I totally understand. Yeah. I had a child do it. Like I could hear him say something about vampire. This was long. This was quite a while ago, like 15 years ago, I think. And I was just like, you know, I kind of turned around and I was like, oh, yuck. You know, I've had people ask me, several people ask me, excuse me, I don't mean to pry, but do you have scleroderma? Because there's definite look to people who have scleroderma. You know, people go, oh, my aunt has scleroderma and or I worked in a clinic with scleroderma patients, you know, and pretty bold of people to do that. I'm super open, so I don't feel like my privacy is being invaded. I'm sort of like, yeah, 
I'm friendly and, you know, we'll talk about it and, and I'll see people too. I don't approach them, <laughs> but I've sat there and I've been in a restaurant and somebody walks in and I'm like, it's so obvious. Do you give them, do you give them the look, like oh, the we, nod? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you give each other the nod. A couple of years ago, I saw a gentleman and he walked into a restaurant and, and I looked at him and he looked at me and we just kind of, not even a real nod, just sort of a, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, this is obvious, you know, the hands. It's surprising to me, actually, because I used to bartend mm-hmm. back in college. When you bartend, like you're everybody's best friend and people feel like they have license to invade your privacy. Oh, I think, and part of it's a couple drinks that makes you seriously emboldened about, yeah. I'm surprised at how many people asked me, and even those who didn't, you could tell that that was for most in their mind because yeah. you can tell the way they look at you or look at your scars mm-hmm. or whatever. And sometimes I wonder, what is that? What is that curiosity? There's so much about us, right? That goes far beyond our physical appearance. Right. And why is somebody so curious about this thing that gives us some unique yeah. identity hmm. over all the things going on in our brains or all our experiences. Because we're visual people. I mean, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Or sometimes I wonder if it's just maybe fear, maybe like fear of how does that happen to somebody? Right. How could that possibly happen to me or to someone I know? Or Right. I don't know. Well... <laughs> I don't expect you to have the answer, but I do often wonder, like, why people feel emboldened to ask personal questions, uh, especially when they don't know you. Some people don't have that switch. They don't have the filters. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's always appropriate or what's not appropriate. And and then it's always so refreshing when that's not what they see firsthand. Like we established earlier, I've never asked you about your disease. Right. Because that's not what I see about you. It is pretty obvious and evident. Yeah. But that's not what I see first right. in you. And, you know, I think when I first met you, I noticed your scars. But I don't notice them now. I'm sure it was a long time ago I was curious. But I don't know if you told me or, you know. I think people see it right see those things, your physicality right away. But once you make a connection... In some other way, then those things go away. You had just mentioned your separation from your kid's dad. Yeah. That is really a painful loss to go through. Yep. We all acknowledge grief related to death. Right. And that kind of loss. I think in our culture, we really don't talk about grief as associated with the breakup of a marriage. Mm -hmm. So when I met... Tom, you know, I was right before my my first surgeries. I was four years into my diagnosis, I think. And at that point, I was young and healthy. And I don't think I knew or he knew what kind of long term this all meant. And so we met and it was love. And within a few years, we got married. It was awesome. And I felt like, oh, see, I have this condition, but I can have all the things that anybody else can have, I guess. And we loved each other dearly, and we ended up having a family. I thought I couldn't be pregnant, so we ended up adopting our first son, Simon, from Vietnam. And then a couple years later, it happened that 
I could. So we ended up having our daughter, Nina. And up until then, you know, I'd had some little bouts, little flare-ups and stuff, but they were pretty manageable. Flare-ups with your health. Oh, sorry, in my condition. Flare, yeah. yeah, not relationship flare-ups. Well, we had some of those too. And so my health would ebb and flow a little bit, but nothing too major. And I think around time Nina was two, three or so, things started happening with my hands and I started getting more flare-ups and I also started getting staph infections. And so I was having to do medical procedures more and I was having more downtime. Were the staph infections from being in the hospital? The staph infections were from the calcium deposits, which ended up not just being my elbows. They ended up manifesting in many parts of my body. Mm. That same plastic surgeon, you know, we go in and just kind of clean it up. When I saw that they were starting to come out, then I would take care of them. One got super infected Mm. quickly, like within 24 hours. And I ended up being in the hospital with pretty severe staph infection in my arm. And then all of a sudden, my hands started to become affected. And so my medical stuff was becoming a little more daunting. Started affecting my relationship. You know, it's hard. I think it's hard being with somebody who has a chronic condition. We still loved each other, but it was taking a toll on us, on him. And I think just the stress of having a family and kids, all of that weighed heavy. Weighed heavy on me, but I think heavy on him. And having to provide, not being able to trust in my kind of health and where it was going. Then I started getting out. My hands started getting surgeries on this. and dee, dee, dee. You know, it was just one thing kind of after the other, I guess. I feel like there was five years of kind of getting to the point where it finally was like, this is not working for anybody anymore. I know we tend to go back and like examine what was it, especially when there was a lot of love. Thinking back, there are moments. Uh, look in the eye and you're like, they don't see me anymore. But then we could always get back to it. Yeah. Like, I think there was enough love there that we could always get back to it. So there was a few years where, ooh, ah, pull back up, you know? We could pull back up and love each other. And then it was just one day. It was after a medical thing. Mm -hmm. It was one day. He said something, and I said, figure it out, you know? It was like a conversation that you may have had before, and somehow you got back around, but this day it just didn't. That was the day. Mm. I remember what he said. I remember what I said. And then that was the day. Yeah. And then, and here we are. And so how? <laughs> years later. How did you process this? I mean, you're divorced now. Yeah, it took a while. <laughs> the paperwork took a while. Just at the end of last year, like, we got the papers. So, so I was 45 with a chronic condition and an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old. It was sad. And it was hard. And I didn't expect to be there. (laughs) So it's been a really hard few years. But I'm coming out of it. (laughs) So one thing I notice, you've been creating a lot of amazing artwork. Thank you. Beautiful paintings. You have a great eye for design. You always have. Thank you. Now I see this work that you're creating. And I think, oh my gosh, that would look really great on any wall in her house. (laughs) Yeah. It just seems so reflective of your design aesthetic. Yeah. You've been a creator for a long time. Yeah. You had a shop for a while. Yeah. You made Clothes. garments yeah. that you sold in that shop. So you've always had artistic expression. Right. But you haven't consistently painted. 
I haven't really ever painted. Yeah, I've always been creative. Part of my thing was I was a dancer in high school, which was another thing that I had to say goodbye to. That's one of the reasons I started realizing I had a condition was I went back to start dancing and then I realized something was going on. So that was sort of my first creative love. But during that time, I was always ceramics, drawing, fashion. I mean, I was a new waver and I loved going to the thrift shops and putting together outfits. And I worked at a resale shop and sold vintage clothing. And so when I was coming back to myself again in the last few years, I was like, what's the thread that's been constant through my life? And it's been my creativity. That's the one thing that I've carried from youngness until now, even with my condition and losing my health and getting a divorce. But this has been a constant. I always circle around back to it somehow. But I haven't always given it value. I'm like, oh, this comes kind of naturally and easy, like too easy. I'm not serious. Nobody's going to take me seriously. Then I'm finally at a point where I'm like, this feels good. And I can trust in it. And I'm going to trust in it. You just said that you've always had creativity. Yeah. And here you have this limited ability to use your hands. Right. So what got you to pick up that paintbrush? Well, a while back, I did some mixed media stuff using vintage fabric that I had from when I used to make clothing. And I was like, oh, I had this idea of kind of doing landscapes using vintage clothing. And so I was doing that. And I was like, oh, I can do that because cut out shapes and, you know, it's already sort of the patterns are there. It's like putting together an outfit of patterns that go together but don't go together. And so I was like, oh, I can do that. And so I did. And it was really cool. And I had a little show and I sold a couple pieces. And then in the last year, I was like, I really want to do something. I've been feeling it for a long time. It's just taking the first step to do it could take me a while. And so I finally talked to somebody. I said, hey, can I have do a show? And they were like, yeah, of course. And I said, okay. And so now I had a deadline. Now I had to create. And so I spent a couple months creating for this show that I had. I started getting into it, and I was like, oh, man, this feels so good. This feels good. And then I had the show, and I sold, like, half of it, and people were really encouraging. I could feel it happening. I was like, I need to do this. This feels good. I need to do this. And I can do this. I might not be able to button my coat, but I can do this. I just said I'm going to start taking myself seriously and do this and make it a practice. I mean, that's sort of been my mantras. Practice makes art. I've got to make it part of my daily thing, and I have to put time away for it. Because of my condition, I have limited time. Energy, I should say. Not limited time, but energy. And so I have to be smart. And I'm not always, you know, sometimes I have to work for money and push that. But if I push that too much, I don't have time for other things. So that's been part of this process in the last few months is just like, you do this, you put that down, you do your art. And you have to do it daily. And I don't always do it daily, but at least three or four days a week, I'm in there for one to three hours. And I create and I push through. That's another thing I've learned, just pushing through with it. It's feeding me, feeding my soul a lot. I don't feel as lonely. I mean, I felt really lonely in the last few years up and down. And that energy has sometimes been looking like for somebody to fill that loneliness. But I don't feel lonely anymore. I have a new love. It's art. (laughs) I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but it really does. It like is feeding me. 
feeding myself. I love that. So I have to do it. And, you know, what that means, the trajectory of it, you know, I have ideas, but really right now it's just doing it and feeling it. Did you foresee yourself being an artist at this time in your life? You know, it's interesting because I've always had this daydream or imagination of artistic. And that being said, you know, with Tom, we had a business. He's artistic. And that was another thing. I did furniture design with him. That's right. You managed that business. Yeah. And I designed pieces along with him that got recognition in magazines. And so that was another creative. So I always was creative, but I think I was living somebody else's dream a little. I don't want to say it wasn't my dream too, but because I couldn't trust my health and stuff, I don't put a lot of eggs in my basket. Right. I understand. This is not what I saw. I didn't see me having a disability and limited use of my hands and being 45 and divorced with children. I didn't see any of that. And it still makes me sad. You know, mourning a dream that you thought was sort of happily ever after. The dream of married life. Children, married life, dogs, (laughs) strollers. I don't know. You know, like just... It was hard, like I said, for many years, and I was super sad, but I wouldn't go back. And now it's like, oh, it was meant to happen this way. I like being on my own now. Yeah. And I think back to those times when there was love, but it wasn't going well, and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to go back there. Yeah. I like having my freedom and the things that are happening. It yeah. feels really good right now. And that's not to say that I don't have moments when I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's another thing I have to it's, I have to tell myself, like, just because you had a bad day and things aren't going well or the art looks like crap, just a moment. Right. Keep going forward. Look back at where you came from. All that stuff. Do you feel a sense of responsibility to make other people feel good? You nurture positivity in others. Is that just natural or is that something you feel you need to do for the people around you? Uh, That's natural. That's awesome. And I think I do it to my detriment sometimes, (laughs) empathizing with people. But I think I can't live in negativity and I want to make people feel good. I just smile most of the time and I feel like the energy you kind of put out there is the energy you get back. I don't like try to push my positive thinking on people and I can read people pretty well so some people are like stay away I don't need that and some people need it it's just the way I have to go through my life I have to be positive there's those people you can see the people and you can see it in their body language who are defeated and I've seen people you know with autoimmune conditions or you know a chronic condition and you can just see that the way they hold themselves, they're hunched over, or they're just in it. You know, I'm going to be in it for a minute, but I'm going to get out of it. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. 
Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.